Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Talia Yuki Moore. I am currently a research scientist at the Robotics Institute at the University of Michigan. But in January, I'll be starting as an assistant professor um, in the mechanical engineering department. Um, and I'm also affiliated with the uh, ecology and evolutionary biology department and the Museum of Zoology at the University of Michigan. So thank you so much for joining us, Professor, and congratulations for the new position. Thank you. I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you have any memories about being interested in science in general as a kid? Yeah, um, I think um, I was really encouraged to do a lot of science when I was a kid. Um, and I was also exposed to a lot of different um, types of science when I was a kid. So I was really lucky in that. Um, neither of my parents were scientists and or um, engineers at the time. And so... I think that they really wanted to prepare me to um, uh, have as many opportunities and, and as many um, kind of skills available as possible for whatever I wanted to do in the future. So, um, yeah, I think I was um, in second grade when I did a report on evolution and my parents helped me out a lot on that and um, learned about the theories there. But um I've also been really exposed to a lot of different um, kind of technologies and things. So my dad taught me how to solder and weld when I was a kid, and um, we've just been building things all the time. That's super interesting. So I'm curious to ask you, since you, you got your bachelor and also a PhD in integrative biology. Yeah, it is interesting uh, uh, to become, becoming in robotics. So how this shift was easy for you, or maybe it would much easier. I don't know if you can tell us a story that the interest in biology and becoming in designing robotics. Yeah, so um, when I I got my um, bachelor's in integrative biology and I got my PhD in organismic and evolutionary biology. And um, when I was an undergraduate student, I was in this really wonderful lab of uh, Bob Full, the polypetal lab. And I worked on different projects every day of the week because I just wanted to know kind of what was going on in biomechanics. I was so excited by just the entire field. Um, and so I was working a little bit on um, kind of um, this one project in which we were examining lizards and we we're kind of running lizards down a track and trying to understand kind of how they moved and, and looking at their ground reaction forces with the force platform. And I think we were a little bit, um, we were worried because the lizard wasn't running very much and we weren't sure how to motivate the lizard. And then I think, uh, I'm not sure if it was me or if it was someone else who um, kind of absentmindedly put a box of um, rubber gloves just down in the track while we were in between trials just waiting for something. And then the lizard just like leapt off. It took a running leap off of that glove box and then onto a vertical surface. And then we captured that video. Luckily, we were running at the time. 
Um, and then we examined that footage and we found that the lizard actually slipped on the slippery glove box and its tail went up and it was still able to maintain a pretty vertical uh, position of the body. And so we decided, hey, this is worth looking at. And so we put a whole bunch of different types of substrates on that box. So we, we put sandpaper to make it a little bit more, um, have more friction and things. And we came up with a theory of how the, the tail um, was being used as kind of like an inertial appendage to um, help prevent uh, forward pitching in the body. And so we decided to test this using a robot. robot. Um, so we got like a little RC car and then we put a little tail on it and then using um, an accelerometer, we were able to actually test that theory out. And so that was my first introduction to, hey, let's build a robot that can test evolutionary hypotheses. And I think it really stuck with me and has been kind of a driving um, motivation in my work. And so even though I did my um, undergrad and my PhD work in biology, I've always thought of robots as this like wonderful tool to test evolutionary hypotheses as well. I think that's really fascinating story um, because I, we speak in this broadcast sometime of how we, what are the missing pieces between what we have in the nature and what we have in soft robotics, for example. What are the missing element? And I, I think in your story, there is a lot of interesting parts, but if you can tell us about how studying biology maybe facilitated for you understanding what you, what you could inspire. Yeah, that's, um, that's exactly everything that I do. So um, oftentimes we think of biology as sort of memorization and sort of, you know, this protein does this and, and this species is, you know, sister to this species. But I really like thinking about biology in terms of how things work um, and whether we can come up with any um, trends, some fundamental principles that explain how things work, um, and then maybe even make predictions about how things work. And so, um, I think it's really important to examine how animals move in in many different scales of complexity. So um, looking within the animal, within its organs, um, but also looking outside of the animal, um, how it moves in an environment and what is the environment like and how does it choose that. So I think all of that is really important to consider when we study an animal, especially when uh, we want to transfer that to robotics. Mm -hmm. I think there's a little question here, but I want first of all to ask you, reflecting that, how you define soft robotics in, in, in respect to what you mentioned, and also what could be the most important question that we have to consider when designing a soft robot? So yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm pretty new to soft robotics as a field, and so I'm not sure that I'm very qualified to be um, defining it, but I do think it has something to do with you know, considering the material properties of the components that you're using um, and how it, um, how those material properties affect the um, performance of the robot. That's really excellent point. And I'm curious to ask you about the material, because when you look to the lizard, what could be inspiring for you? Is it the structure of the lizard? Is it the material or the biology of the material? I'm not expert as you, so you can't tell us. 
how do you see the intelligence? Is it come from the material that uh, they, they have already or the structure, intelligence? How do you see that happening? Yeah, so the amazing thing about animals is that there are multiple different types of, um, multiple different ways in which the animal motion can be controlled. Um, I think a lot of it does have to do with the um, material properties. So we would call some of that maybe like mechanical feedback. So just the elasticity of our skin and our tendons and our muscles themselves can um, help to affect the way that we move, but also there's neural control. And um, looking at how the um, sensory information is taken in from all these different sensors, you know, we have visual information, we have auditory, we have like proprioception, um, we have all kinds of these uh, data. Sometimes they just go to our, um, our spinal cord and then get processed and and sometimes they go all the way to the brain. And so it's really fascinating to think about how these neural control and then the mechanical kind of feedback all mix together and, and turn into the motion that we see in the real world. Great. And I think also the question, I think that's maybe the bottleneck question in the community. We're asking how we can access the beneficial non-linearities in the material and the structure. I think, uh, I think you know the experiment of the dead fish that still swimming against the forest uh, in the water. And that's example how the morphology of the of the animal plays a significant role in the environment. Even they are, if they did, they still can uh, function because of the morphology. So if you can tell us, have you ever thought how in robotics we can access this non-linearities or how we can embrace this non-linearities instead of getting rid of yeah, so I think, um, actually, I just found out that the famous um, dead fish swimming in the von Karman Vortex Street is uh, was taken by Jimmy Liao, who's a professor. So I didn't know who had taken that video. I just want to give credit where credit is due. Um, and I think that that phenomenon is a combination of the material properties of the fish, but also um, the environment. So the what you maybe don't see in the video is that um, this is flow going across a cylinder and then it's creating these vortices that shed left and right. So it's called like a von Karman vortex street. And so um, there have been lots of hypotheses that being in that von Karman vortex street allows um, animals who move in flowing environments to kind of decrease their energy expenditures because it allows them to, it's like self-stabilizing. And so that it's a combination of both the environment and the animal itself. Um, I think that that's definitely something to be looking into, um, how these interactions and interfaces between animals and environments work. Um, but also I think that um, in terms of non-linearities, I think that we really need to think about how, um, how to leverage nonlinearities um, instead of kind of reducing nonlinearities and reducing complexity. So a lot of experimental work, um, if you want to be really precise, you have to kind of get rid of variation so that you can take precise measurements. And that's really, really important for fundamentally understanding, you know, mechanisms and 
and things like that. But um, actually, it's the variability and the complexity that is fascinating. And so I think we need to really examine things in both ways. Thanks so much for the elaboration. I appreciate it. So I'm curious to ask you, as you study biology, I think that's also an argument in the field. Sometimes robotists focusing on using the material in a certain way, just forcing the material to make a like certain formation, for example. And we have the question how we can close the gap between material science and soft robotics. Because that's challenge here, how we can have like a, uh, a communication, what could be significant parameters we have to incorporate so that we can optimize the design. So from the biology perspective, to be honest with you, and I needed this answer, do you think that's a community of soft robotics? We still, of course, uh, in the early stages, but do you think there's misunderstanding how you can design a soft robot? When you look at uh, how the material is used, or maybe bioinspiration or biomimicry, do you think there is missing uh, 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 pieces, do you think, uh, from your eye when you look to the field? Yeah, so I think that um, there has been a lot of progress in soft robotics as a field, especially in terms of bioinspired design. Um, I think that. Um, there, especially in like the Octobot project, there's a lot of real examination of the biology there that informs the design of the octopus robot. Um, I think that this isn't just a problem that is present in engineering or in soft robotics, but it's actually in bio-inspired engineering in general. So I think that there are a few really famous examples of biology that tend to trickle into engineering. Um, and then a lot of focus in engineering gets put on these few examples. But actually, the diversity of life on Earth is so immense. So I think that there is no limit to what we can find if we examine the natural world and no limit to what types of inspirations we might have in engineering. And so I think that it would be wonderful to have a much more integrative kind of training for the next generation of students to, yeah, be exposed to a lot of different organismal systems to find out how they work, but also be really um, grounded in the fundamentals of material science and, and mechanical engineering to really have the tools to do experiments, to test these theories, but also to extract the principles underlying these biological organisms and then use those to design things that may even be better than what exists out there right That's now. That's excellent point, yeah. And I also would like to ask you about the control. I don't know if you can comment about that, but uh, for example, we have this uh, also debate in the community how, how, how we can uh, incorporate morphology computation so that we can enhance the traditional control techniques. Because traditional control is designed or, or tailored sometimes for rigid robotics. So do you think, because that's another question, and we had in the podcast, if we understand how we can use the nonlinearities, both the material and the structure geometry, we, we can get rid of the control. So the, the structure or the material can, can uh, execute certain deformation or movement. Do you think that's something in soft robotics that when you force a material or force uh, to, to move in a certain way, do you think we have to use a control or we have to get rid of this control and, and, and enhance or embrace again 
the understanding of biology. How do you see these pieces? Do you, do you, can you answer about that? Yeah, so um, in my kind of limited beginning experience in soft robotics, I am coming up to coming up against this kind of limit on what just a material can do on its own. And that's the same as it is in a biological system too. So for a lot of things like um, arthropods, which are, are includes like bugs and crustaceans and things, um, a lot of, and, and a lot of kind of simpler organisms, we see that um, there, there is a lot of feed forward control and maybe not quite as much um, neurofeedback during periodic tasks. Um, and so there, there, we see that, but then we also see that there's a limit to what you can accomplish when all you have is feed forward control and you're using the material properties to kind of provide the mechanical feedback to let you keep going. And so I think that if what you're interested in doing is just like a very small, um, limited range of things, I think that you can just rely on the material properties and um, you don't need to worry about control. But if you want to go beyond that, like if you want to switch from task to task, I do think that you need to really incorporate much more control um, into the into the system. And so... Yeah, I think that soft robots are the way that they're designed and the way that they're controlled. I think that really mirrors the way that um, biological systems are, are controlled. And I'm curious to ask you, do you think we fully understand how physics is behind material we use? And also, do you think what be, could be the optimum material looking for for designing your robot? So do you think it just has to be certain properties like viscoelastic or have to be... Because you mentioned the energy, and I think that's something very interesting also in designing. So how do you think about understanding the, the community, understand the physics behind the material, and also what kind of optimum material looking for? Yeah, I think I there's so much out there, especially in terms of metamaterials, that's really exciting these days. Um, and also kind of the, the biologically engineered materials that are really cool as well. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what more the field has coming. Um, and I think there are so many different types of materials that would be really useful in, in bio-inspired soft robotics. But um, there is one that I think exists in insects that I'm not sure exists yet in an engineered material, um, and that's resolin. So resolin is this extremely resilient um, material that you find in the joints of, of insects. And it's UV fluorescent, so we can really easily see where it is on animals. And it's got almost like almost no energy loss from when you um, when you stress it, you know, um, it'll it'll bounce back really, really easily. And I'd, I'm not sure that we have something that is quite as resilient as resolin. Um, the other thing, too, that I think about a lot is wear. So a lot of the robotic systems that I'm designing are made to be used with animals and in outdoor environments for extended periods of time. 
And so I'm really thinking about wear and aging. Um, and I think a lot of times we see these like new robotic systems that are out in the world and they're like a proof of concept and they're really, really cool. But I, if, if I'm going to want to use one of those systems in my own research, I'm going to want to know, you know, how long will it last and how reliable is the performance? Um, and that's something that I'm really looking forward to in, in the yeah, field. Yeah, that's such an interesting answer. So I want to go back again when you say about uh, the experiment you have witnessed that uh, with the lizard, and then you say that what I'm looking for. And I'm curious to ask you if you're a student, come to you, just fresh student, and if you look into any animal, what may be the the first thing you have to look for to understand the maybe locomotion or intelligence or the behavior. I don't know what, what could be the, the first thing that you say that, that what you have to look for and how it's really hard to understand how this animal moves or behave with the environment. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So um, I think that um, the first step is being exposed to many different animals, right? So watching nature documentaries or going to the zoo or going out into the world and just examining the nature that's around you is really important. And nearly everything that you find, if you examine it carefully enough, you're going to find something remarkable about it. Um, and you can then, you know, examine something in the lab or look at its, its musculoskeletal morphology um, look at its anatomy in general and, and start to take a look at, at what, what are the components that make up this animal. You can also bring it into a lab and, um, and start to look at kind of the limits of its performance. So how fast can it go? How high can it jump? Um, how long can it go? What's its oxygen consumption? These sorts of things. Um, but also, it's really important, and this is something I learned uh, a lot in my graduate training, it's really important to observe the animal or the organism, whatever it is, in its um, natural environment. Because even if we're able to elicit some sort of maximal performance in a lab environment, we may never actually see that performance in the wild. Um, and the other thing is that if we see this animal in the wild, we may discovered that there are so many other uses for the things that we're examining that we may not have considered before. So if you are a hopper, like some sort of hopping animal, you may think that this is you know, very useful for locomotion and for foraging, but it turns out that it's also really important for uh, jumping away from predators. And it's also really important for these mating battles or something like that, right? So this is the kind of thing where these, this one structure, the legs, are used for so many different things throughout the animal's life that um, we're, by just examining it in one set of circumstances, we may not fully understand um, the multifunctionality of this, these organs. That's super interesting. And I'm also curious to ask you about the tail because you mentioned that the tail of the lizard was very interesting uh, and this just is witness what he has so read in the experiment. But some uh, animals, of course, they maybe lose these limbs like uh, and then regrow again. How this happen? Why certain species has this function that they can grow their limbs again or their tail again? Why maybe in human or us it doesn't happen like that? Do you think this limitation will be in your environment and 
and you have this functionality like the tail or changing color, whatever. And what could be the limitation and why they can, for example, they can grow this part of their body? How does this happen? Do you think uh, that also because we have a growing soft robot, so if we can get inspiration behind that? Yeah, this is a really fascinating aspect of biology, for sure. We call this autotomy, A-U-T-O-T-O-M-Y, I believe. And um, it's not just tails that do this. So um, this also happens in a certain type of rodent in its fur as well, so in its skin. And oftentimes we see these in prey animals and they will use this as an escape strategy. And so if a predator has grabbed onto a part of their body, they can shed that part of their body and then escape. And especially for the tails, the lizard tails will actually continue to writhe around and move and struggle even after they've been separated from the body which is pretty cool. And then, of course, um, it takes a lot of energy to regrow that limb if it's possible or to regrow your skin, but it's it allows you to live another day and allows you to go and collect those resources so that you will have enough energy to, to regrow those parts. So we're not sure exactly what the develop... Well, I'm not sure, actually, what the developmental mechanisms are that allow these organisms to... Um, regrow. But one thing that I do know is that it doesn't always happen perfectly. So the lizards that I was examining were the Agama Agama. They're these like rock lizards from Africa and they their tails don't always grow back perfectly. Sometimes they had a club at the tail. Sometimes they would grow back kind of stumpy and um, maybe would not have as much fine actuation control as they did before they were um, they were autonomized. And so I do think that this is a really important source of inspiration and I, I really want to see many, many more self-healing robots in the future, especially ones that are um, kind of fluid-based, right? So pneumatics or hydraulics and things like that. I think it, that would be really, really cool because you know, one aneurysm and then you're, you're out of the game. You have to make a new robot. So I think self-help, self-healing is, is super awesome. And I really hope that we get more robots like that in the future. I think we need uh, one episode that you can discuss more because I really enjoy your answers. So I think that's what we need more discussion about this subject here. Thanks for that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And may I ask you what may be the area or direction of research you think is very promising? but the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it. You can uh, maybe answer from robotics in general and soft robotics as well, perspective. Yeah, so um, I think I'm, I'm not quite as, uh, as embedded in the soft robotics uh, literature as I would like to be. I think that's something I, I need to be doing a lot more of. And I'm really excited to learn more about, you know, everything that's been going on for for decades even. I, I recently learned about like Suzumori and and all of those robots from from I guess the 90s. Um, it's pretty remarkable. Um, I think that understanding um, kind of long-term performance and self-healing, I think those are two really big 
things that I would be really interested in seeing in the soft robotics community um, for the future. I think in terms of bio-inspired robotics in general, I think that um, examining the complexity rather than the mean is really important to my research and has really led to some fascinating discoveries and fascinating kind of applications. And so if we just look at kind of what is the most consistent pattern or what's the most, um, what is the thing that we can most reliably get an animal to do, we may not be examining the full spectrum of what an animal could do or even um, the behaviors that are under selection in the natural environment. And so if we come up with new tools and new methods to examine the complexity of um, not just biological systems, but also engineered systems and think about kind of multifunctionality, um, I think that that's, that will be a rich field for sure. Yeah. And I also ask you about uh, emotion. How you can tell us about emotion maybe in the lizard? The, 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 maybe a stupid question, I don't know, but how, how we can incorporate emotion maybe in the... Because I, I don't know if you hear about that. We want, to, for example, to design a robot that can feel pain or something like that. Do you think there's something realistic you can do or this is hoax? And do animals have emotion like the lizard? We speak about rodents. Do they have emotion? So I'm not sure about emotions, but... I do know that we have a rich body of knowledge and research on how animals sense pain. And so this is something that's really, really important when you go into kind of um, animal experimentation for many different reasons, um, especially in surgery and especially in veterinary practice. So um, I had, I was taking a vertebrate surgery course and there was like a full lecture on how to tell if different types of animals are in pain. Um, and, and it's really important. And yes, many, many different types of animals do feel pain and we do see these kind of pain sensors. And I think that there is distress that we see in many types of simpler organisms as well. But I'm not sure about emotion or kind of mental state. Um, I, I think that so I recently have been doing a kind of like a human simulated robot interaction study and I think that whether or not the robot has an emotional state I think that humans want to have an emotional connection to a robotic system and I think that we want to be able to empathize and we want to um I think that we want the, the robot to be able to have choices and to want to interact with us. And that, that's kind of what I've been gathering from my first research project into kind of human-robot interaction. And I think that if we can engineer ways to at least mimic the sense in a human that, um, you know, there is a motivation and a willingness to interact with us, I think that that will actually go a long way to acceptance um, and, and widespread use. That's also an interesting aspect, yeah. 
and if I ask you maybe what is something is challenging for you, maybe it's still a puzzle, it's still like you can't really figure out, and maybe you wanted to pursue in, in your career for this research. Hmm. Yeah, this is this is a good question because everything is a is a challenge and a puzzle. <laughs> I, I'm really, really I mean, that's what makes it science. That's what makes it fascinating to to you know, uh, go on an adventure, a scientific adventure to figure out these puzzles. I think every, every encounter with an animal is an opportunity for this kind of puzzle. Um, I think one of the things that we really don't understand is what a small animal does in its everyday life throughout its life. So how many times does an animal almost die, but just barely slips away. You know, how many, how many friends and, and neighbors does this animal encounter? Um, how hard is it for this animal to find food? Um, I think for things that are like dog sized and above, probably like rabbit sized and above maybe, we, we have the ability to put these sensors on these animals and understand what they're doing. Um, and then for things that are insect size and smaller, we can bring them into a controlled environment and then watch them, because especially because their, their life cycles are so short. But in between, in this mesoscale from like insects to dogs, we're not really sure what they do in a community, in the natural world, because we don't have the sensing ability yet to um, observe these animals without affecting their behaviors. And because of that, we don't have a solid understanding of how multiple different types of selective pressures are interacting to shape the structures and the behaviors that we see in the animal. So oftentimes we'll observe something in an animal and then we'll say, you know, this, this is likely to be useful for this one one situation when really the whole animal is evolving um, over millions of years over you don't even know what the different um, relative importance of these different situations are in its lifetime and so I think if we really want to understand how selective pressures shape these um, structures and behaviors that we see in an animal then we really need to examine how um, how it lives its life like throughout its entire life i would like to thank you for this i think this really excellent point again because i think it, it's again i think we need to be introspective about uh, what you say because it's very important and i would like to ask you this question maybe a stupid question do you think that human being are the smartest creature you have witnessed because there's debate sometimes that maybe there's other intelligent creatures than human being do you agree with that um i think that the idea of like kind of intelligence and sentience, I'm I'm not sure how useful that is to kind of my my worldview, <laughs> um, because I I think that all animals um, are I think that they're all you know existing and they're 
they likely have at least some fundamental motivations in terms of at least um, like reflexes and um, even if it comes down to like sensory bias and things like that. So I think I'm not sure what the definition of intelligence is or what, what a definition of sentience is. It's really fuzzy for me, but I think that um, regardless of what an animal's intelligence is, I think that they're worthy of respect and they're worthy of inquiry. Interesting. I think uh, this all interesting point. Yeah, we're close to the end. I have a few questions. First question is, how can we enable more inclusive culture around combative ideas? I think again, you have background in biology, and I think I think your background is really interesting for understanding robotics. I think that we need also the community. So, how we can ensure to be intellectually inclusive? So, if you design something and you neglect biology and neglect material science and just and that's also we had in the podcast that we have an issue sometimes misconception about the field that we present a presentry a soft robot ready for camera just just show and we neglect the fundamental and maybe deep understanding and that's one aspect we try to uh, tackle in our community how do you see the realistic solution to be intellectually inclusive that everyone have the right to get the funding on grant to pursue their their passion, so the project, as, as like you, you're definitely are so passionate about what you're doing. It's so clear. So, how how you see this point about inclusion? I think you're absolutely right that a lot of it is driven by funding. So, one of the most useful things I think that we can have in a community, a research community that really wants to enable interdisciplinary collaboration is we need to have interdisciplinary research funding agencies. So we need, we need a lot of money to go um, to these interdisciplinary and collaborative um, type awards. I think that that would be amazing. I think if we had institutions um, that were really focused on kind of these interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary ideas. I think that some of them exist now, but I, I wish that they were, you know, more the norm. And I think that having um, interdisciplinary education is important as well. So um, just choosing one major in one field isn't really enough anymore to, to really be doing groundbreaking science. I think that if we start to train people really early on to have um, not just like knowledge and expertise in one field and not just knowledge and expertise in two fields, but actually to, to learn how to respectfully um, collaborate and communicate with other people. I think that's really important. So one of the things I've been trying to do um, in all of my interactions is um, trying to train myself, but also to um, help uh, help learn, help all of us kind of learn how to communicate respectfully to one another and help each other learn and grow from these um, different perspectives that we have. So that's something I'm interested in learning actually about how to do better as well. And so um, if anyone 
who's listening has some recommendations, I'd be interested in, in learning some new tools as well. That's also important. Yeah, thanks for that. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? Hmm, I'm, I'm not sure. So um, my father was an artist for a while and I was thinking about art really seriously for a long time and um I had I had um kind of an art show and in, in this really intense art class and um I left I decided I didn't want to pursue art anymore because it was so subjective and so ego driven but I think that science and engineering is not quite as devoid of <laughs> as, as um, subjectivity and and the ego as I had once naively thought. But I think rather than the ego, I think that having curiosity, having creativity, and having determination to see things through and to really follow a lead, to really like pull a thread until you see where it comes from. Um, I think that those are the qualities that I look for in um, in students and that I hope to um, have in myself as well. And if you can tell us what be the most important quality you have gained while being in academia and something you have to maintain, one quality. Mm -hmm. I think, okay, the most important quality. I think... It's, it is this um, determine, emotional determination and, and resilience. Um, I think that I had curiosity before, but um, I think that my curiosity was fine-tuned. Same with creativity, but I think that kind of this emotional determination and emotional resilience is something that I developed through academia. Um, I'm not sure if that's like a, a good reflection of academia or, or not, but... And I think that's also interesting, the emotional part. We sometimes yeah. hide it, but that's absolutely right, what you say. I agree with you. I mean, academia, there's so much rejection in academia, right? So every, every grant that doesn't get funded, every position that you don't get interviewed for, um, there's a lot of rejection. And so I think that being in academia and, and sticking with it, but also, you know, having these, having these rejections, but also having these successes has really helped me to um, develop an emotional resilience. And that's re been really helpful for, you know, my personal life, but also I think it's, it's something that I'm trying to um, kind of, yeah, trying to, to, help my students develop as well but in maybe a more gentle way that's really important thanks so much for that and lastly mm -hmm. what was the best advice was given to you was it personally or professionally and was it life changing hmm i don't know what the best advice was all of my, all of the advice that i get is really amazing and i am so thankful to all of my like mentors and friends to really help me help me with their advice I think that the, the best advice is to really work on your communication skills. So if you can describe something really, really clearly, 
um, so that a majority of people or, you know, a, a large quantity of people can understand your motivations and why your work is important. I think that's really, really, really important. So one of the ways I tried to develop this was um, I joined a, a filmmaking workshop, actually. So it's like a scientific and wildlife um, filmmaking workshop where they bring scientists and engineers and, and they bring professional documentary filmmakers together um, so that they can work together and learn how to make documentary films. And so um, I learned so much about how to distill a complex scientific idea down to one message so that the majority of the audience would understand what was going on. Because, you know, the scientist in me was trying really hard to really uh, communicate, you know, the nuance and the complexity of the study. But if I had done that, then very, very few people would have been able to access the information. Um, but really learning how to communicate and who your audience is um, and being able to communicate with a variety of different audiences is going to be so important, whether it's from uh, grant writing to teaching to communicating with a collaborator. I think it's really important. Yeah, that's really wonderful advice and very important for a student and science as well. So yeah, I agree with you. So finally, I would like to thank you. This was really fascinating and I wish we had more time, but I appreciate your time. So thanks so much. It was really enjoyable. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is really fun.